0: Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm R.J. Heyman, your host. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and David Zoll. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence or opposite, playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us.
1: Okay, welcome back to The Mockingcast, episode number two of our sort of new era of broadcasting, podcasting, whatever you call it. It is December 14th, and we are getting ever closer to Christmas, and I don't know about you guys, but right here where I am in Charlottesville, it is really beginning to look a lot that way. How is it in Houston?
0: We had snow last week. It was nuts. It was Thursday night. Went outside. There were flurries. I'm like, there's no way this is going to stick. Went to bed. Got up Friday morning. There were two inches of snow on the ground. Our backyard was covered. My 13-year-old, 15-year-old came down, could not believe it. Got the 15-month-old out in the snow for the first time. He didn't quite know what to make of it. But uh, Christmas in Houston. Praise God, it was amazing.
1: Wow. I know what you guys need right now is a little bit more time off school. Yes, we do. My kids would love that. (laughs) Oh my gosh.
2: As soon as I saw that, I mean, everyone else is like, it's going to snow. And I was like, for the love of all that is holy, (laughs) please do not cancel school tomorrow. (laughs) <laughs> i mean i just assumed there'd at least be a delay You're such a cringe, know, i a love i beer. love
0: uh snow days come <sighs> on where's the little girl
2: because you were from Louise. connecticut and i'm from mississippi and i'm like nope Mm-mm. Mm. it's cold you fear the snow yeah
1: there mm. you were at school though the other day weren't you you sent me some stuff that made me cry basically
2: oh so i got to go to our neighborhood school where my son is in first grade and read to them. I was tasked with talking to them about what it is like to be a published author, which was awesome. But obviously, I can't read from my book, Churchy, The Real Life Adventures of a Wife, mom and priest because I don't need to complain about the boss that made me wear pantyhose when I worked at the hospital to a room full of first graders. (laughs) So I couldn't read that, but I could read the very persistent pirate I actually said to them, I talked a little bit about, you know, my publishing company, Mockingbird, and it's public school. So I did that carefully. Mm -hmm. But then I said, and can you believe we've only published books for adults and we've never published a book for a kid? And they were like, what? And then I was like, "Do this (laughs) one. So yeah, so I got to read The Very Persistent Pirate to them, and they had the funniest questions about what it's like to write, and they wanted to know all about the pirate, and they thought the word booty, which, you know, means treasure was hysterical it It was it (laughs) it was really awesome it It was awesome
1: i still laugh at booty anytime i read it (laughs) (laughs) they
2: like they they loved it man they ate it up and then the best part is that mockingbird was able to donate 125 copies of the very persistent pirate to the kids at that school because we're in the neighborhood that got hit really hard by the hurricane Mm. a lot of our kids lost their entire libraries and Dave, I haven't told you this, but it was hard to go through the thank you notes because I know some of those kids really well and I know the ones that lost everything and like just the sweetest notes that they wrote us. So it was very powerful.
1: Oh, Oh, gosh. I I mean, I shared it with CJ and Maddie who wrote the book and they were just beyond beyond touched and it looked yeah just glorious it's kind of why we do what we do i guess it was awesome oh, my favorite awesome. moment
2: was when they asked me what my editor's name was and i said his name is david and they all freaked out because they all knew a david it was awesome <laughs> <laughs> I was like, could it be the same guy. I don't know, oh, guys.
0: Man. Yeah, it was awesome. The enthusiasm of kids is so great.
1: Yeah, that's a good thing when you can get excited because you know someone who has that same name. I mean, that's an incredible, a beautiful thing.
0: I don't ever well, get that, Sarah. No one ever no knows one, someone with my like, name. No, there's no Ruyan out there. I know Ruyan. Oh my gosh, yes. I know a guy.
1: Well, Star Wars, of course, comes out tonight, really, in most places. And tomorrow, I've got tickets to see it both tomorrow and Saturday because I'm that kind of person. But actually, one of them is for a kid's birthday party, and I did not want to see it for the first time with a bunch of seven-year-old you guys going
0: yeah actually we have um i mean hopefully it's my, my kids are not going to listen to this podcast i bought us tickets to like one of those upscale movie theaters with like the reclining seats and the pillows and the you know seat side service and it was not cheap man it was like over a hundred bucks for the four tickets but totally worth it i mean because mm. they have no idea there's going to be a surprise they think we're going to see zoo lights or something they're like we've been to zoo lights four times like well fifth time's a charm bad kids <laughs> But my biggest fear is my wife's gonna fall asleep, which I'm I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure is gonna happen. So I'm just I'm getting prepared. It's 152
1: minutes long. Sarah, do you guys have plans to see this
2: movie? No, I, that's not I'm, that's not my vibe, guys. But I would <laughs> what? definitely. So good. I would definitely. Take a good, solid mom nap if my husband were taking <laughs> Yeah, my wife going come out
0: very well-rested. Very oh, well-rested. Yeah,
2: I took the best nap during Captain Underpants. It's awesome. It so, happens all yeah. the time. We went
0: to see Inside Out, right? She falls asleep five minutes in. She wakes up right at the end. I'm bawling, like, in the seat <laughs> next door. She's like, what is wrong with you? Like, get your act together. My sons are making fun of me, right? And then a few months later, we watch it at home, and I have to mop her up off the floor. And she's like, I understand now. <laughs> I get it. I'm like, yeah, you do. Don't, don't, mock, don't mock the husband. Don't fall asleep in the movie theater wasting 15 bucks on you.
1: Oh, I mean, it's like your kids are captive. It's dark. It's, you're really comfortable. It doesn't yeah. matter what time of day it is. And I, we've got a 15-month-old.
0: Mm. There's no limit to the amount of sleep Mm-mm. we both need right now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, any opportunity.
1: I started dozing in, in Coco the other day, and it was a good movie, too. And then I got, I got reproached by Kate. She was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I was doing that. I'm sorry. (laughs) Anyway, the new U2 album is out. I posted a big, long review of it today. You know, U2 are one of these bands. I think that everyone, especially of our generation. You can't have kind of not come into contact with them in some form or another, and everyone has an opinion about them. It's hard to talk about them without like heavily qualifying it, or you're too cool for you 2 or you're obsessed, or you you think that they're the most pretentious people on earth. I happen to be a big fan. i always been a big fan. My dad took me to see the Zouropa tour when we were living in Europe as a kid, and it was just a real watershed for me. But do you guys have any affection for you too? Do you like Bono? Do you not like him? Christians have for even more complicated relationship here, I think, because they've become like the banner waivers or they're not Christian enough.
0: I love you too. Joshua Tree is one of the first albums I ever bought in 1986 or seven whenever it won the, the Grammy. And I just wore that CD out. And then I remember Octoon Baby coming out and being so excited. And that opening, you know, gritty Brian Eno guitar riff just being like, what the heck is this? I was so disappointed and kind of angry about it. <sighs> and then, of course, Octoon Baby is an incredible album and loved it. And my wife actually got me tickets to go see them here live in Houston a few months back. She ended up actually not being able to come because our baby got sick, of course. So I took my 15 year old son and we had a great time. Although I will say early on, he's like, I've never seen so many old white people together in one place. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, you shut your mouth. you were
2: like, except church. Yeah, Uh exactly. exactly. But it was, it was,
0: it was powerful. I mean, it was. I guess it's the second or third yeah. time I'd, see, I'd seen them. I actually, gosh, my my first real girlfriend in high school when I was a sophomore, I took to a YouTube concert, like Zoo TV tour, and we swung to "With or Without You." It was a moment, mm-hmm. but uh, oh it, was, it was still powerful, man. There, you know, I just I like Bono because I I really do think at the end of the day, those guys they understand the gospel. They really mm-hmm. do. Like they understand sin, they mm-hmm. understand grace. You know, as Bono said, you know, grace travels outside of karma, and if if karma is the truth, none of us have any hope, including him. But but he's hoping that grace is the answer. That there's a God out there who's going to forgive him. And then beyond that, I think they really understand the theology of the cross. You know, at this contemporary service we have at St. Martin's called the Altar, the band plays Yahweh for the offertory song, which is just such a powerful poem about the the, the theology of the cross always pain before the child is born that there's something about the way that God works that it's it's you know it's it's darkest before the dawn and and kind of have to reach a place of hopelessness and man at the end of that song when he sings you know take this heart and make it break I have to sort of fight it back a little bit because I feel like him like my mouth is quick to criticize and I'm lazy and and sinful and degenerate and just I pray that God would take me and do something with me that only he can do that I can't do myself and so he's a bit insufferable and those glasses are ridiculous and his haircuts through the years, the Louise, but he's kept it real for like, kept like four decades, you know, they've been doing mm. this thing. And at the end of the day, you got to, you got to think it's kind of genuine, especially when you see the people he spent time with. And you know, he was just as comfortable with like Nelson Mandela as he was with Jesse Helms, mm-hmm. which mm. in and of itself is a, is a, a statement, I think of his, I don't know, his understanding of the gospel. So I'm, I'm a fan as mm. it were.
2: That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I love you too. I think they're great. Yeah, I, I think they're awesome. When I was a freshman in high school, my best friend's brother was a freshman at Samford, not Stanford, mm. Samford in Birmingham. And you two played there. Her dad, oh, I'm remembering this now. So I wrote about her in my book. So her dad had just died that year very suddenly. And he paid for us to come to Birmingham and he and his girlfriend took us to see you too and that would have been their beautiful day that sort of era mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it was an incredibly I don't I, I, the word healing is probably really strong but I fully understood and still understand why people have such a religious experience when they go to this concerts like it was just mm. really incredible and very special so yeah I'm a big fan.
1: the new record when you guys get some time for it it's it's better than the last one and it's not perfect but it's got a string of songs on the second half of it. That are just unbelievable, and just in my opinion, so far, and maybe I'll regret this one day, but they're up there with some of their classics. And there's a song called "Landlady," which is about God, and like, and clearly about God. I mean, he's been playing with the feminine and God mm. since you know mysterious ways. I mean, it just he's been doing that forever. It is such a powerful portrait of grace and theology of the cross and assurance. In fact, and it's also really beautiful. There's nothing that feels forced about it which hasn't always been true of their music. I highly commend it to you, but the album ends with a song called 13, which is actually not only the 13th track, but it's referencing Psalm 13 mm. about Lord, you know, put light to my eyes. And there's this, all this light coming, you know, darkness gathering around the light, you know, that there is a light that we can't always see. And his prayer is sort of don't let it go out. And for me at Advent, I wonder if they timed it that way, mm. because I think that they went back and worked on some of the songs after Brexit or after the election and, I could tell where they did that. I'm not sure it was the right move, but you know they don't consult me when they do these things. But <laughs> it's um, there's some great stuff about Syria, and Dave. he always loves to sort of preach to America as a, in a kind of like affectionate way. But that stuff kind of falls. America as an idea usually falls flat with me personally. But when De Bono gets into the soul of it, which is what he does on Landlady and the little things that give you away, which is really a dark night of the soul and then 13, and love is bigger than anything in its way. I mean, the chorus of that last one, which is such a slogan, you know, you're like, oh, you roll your eyes, Bono, come on. Love is bigger than anything in its way. But the the chorus is actually, if I could only hear myself when I say love is bigger than anything in its way. Mm. And it's what he's trying to convey to his children, and it is this Easter morning song that is just anthemic in all the right ways even though the critics sort of say it sounds like coldplay but of course Coldplay sound like you too seriously and who even cares if the, who cares who they're sounding like they are so much themselves and it matters whether the song works or not and I feel like the song works extremely well so I commend it to you and to our listeners but let's actually shift gears away from you two, because we've got some slightly more serious stuff to talk about did you guys get a chance to watch that video? Of Chamath, I'm going to murder this last name, Paliha Pitya, the guy who was talking to all the MBA students at yeah. Stanford. Do you get a load yeah. of this guy? He's um it was intense. It was very intense, and it's kind in of a prophetic good way, like in a great way. He's clearly yeah. a, a truth teller of a guy this has been making the rounds this is a video on YouTube with this guy, Chamath, who is a venture capitalist. He's the co-owner of the Golden State Warriors. And he was instrumental in the early years of Facebook. He's yet another one of these social media executives who has forsworn their work. When the interviewer asked him about it, he says, I feel tremendous guilt. And he's talking about his role in social media, because we have created tools that are ripping apart the social fabric of how society works. The short-term dopamine-driven feedback loops that we have created are destroying how society works. No civil discourse, no cooperation, misinformation, mistruth. And it's not an American problem. This is not about Russian ads. This is a global problem, eroding the core foundations of how people behave sort of between each other. And he says, I don't have a solution. My solution is that I just don't use these tools anymore. And I haven't for years I mean, he goes on to really pinpoint kind of an increasingly accepted criticism, I think. He says, we curate our lives around this perceived sense of perfection because we get rewarded in these short-term signals, hearts, likes, thumbs up, and we conflate that with value and we conflate it with truth. Instead, what it really is, is fake, brittle popularity, the short term, that leaves you even more vacant and empty than before you did it because it forces you into this vicious cycle about what's the next thing I need to do because I need it back. And think about that compounded by 2 billion people. And you don't realize it, but you're being programmed. It was unintentional, because speaking as someone who was there in the back rooms while these things were being developed, but now you've got to decide how much you want to give up. Now, I mean, this is something we talked about many times in the past, but it bears repeating and I'm revisiting ad nauseum, especially at the end of 2017, this social media toxicity that seems to be. Tearing the fabric as he says, do you guys think he's going too far? What do you do with what he I mean, says? Very,
0: I'll say, Dave, it's a very, it's a very present issue for me and my wife because we have a 15 year old and a 13 year old, and I love them and I want to give them what they want for Christmas. And so, two years ago, uh, they both got iPhones, and it's been a little—I I don't know—we we wrestle with it because they spend a lot of time on their phones, you know, watching YouTube videos or going through um their their uh, you know, not Instagram but snap I don't know, Snapchat or in you know, their feeds basically and just reading stories and and I go back and forth because they're not hermits. you know they they get out there they've got friends, they have interests you know they love sports and playing guitar and and they get together with their friends and play guitar and even things like you know when they play Xbox or ps four by and large they are playing with their friends. you know they're not sitting at home just doing it alone. like it was funny I was talking with Josh Sarah's husband about him getting his first Um, NES, you know, Nintendo Entertainment System, because we were talking about Christmas stuff. And I said, he said, it was no social stuff. It was just me in a room alone playing (laughs) Zelda. That's it. (laughs) But, you know, our 13-year-old will sit upstairs and he'll be chatting with three or four friends as they're um, playing, you know, World War II, Call of Duty or Madden 18 or whatever it is. So I struggle with it. The hopeful part of me wants to believe that because it's such an integral part of their upbringing... They'll have very highly developed BS meters, and that they're not going to let it totally take over their lives. the, the fearful side is that Atlantic article, I remember from a few months back about you know our, our smartphones destroying a generation, and it's like oh you know. But I thought about you know today. I remember a story my father told me once, who grew up in a small town in Holland, and whose father was a like innkeeper and bartender and a little bit of a farmer. And his dad used to tell him not to read books because it was going to make him want things. Mm. And mm-hmm. so I, I'm always a little skeptical. Like the things we call classics now in the 21st century were pulp fiction. And, and you know Jules Verne was destroying kids' minds in the 1850s or whatever. So I go back and forth. We're struggling with it, to be honest. I sort of want to make them watch that video and be like, what do you guys think? And they're just going to roll their eyes and be like,
1: this is absurd. So... Mm, that's where the world they live in
2: yeah I mean I'm on social media a ton I don't know if you guys have noticed but really yeah (laughs) sometimes at work sometimes I mean I'm just on it a lot you know and the way I justify that to myself and I definitely know that I'm on it too much and definitely justify it to myself is that I'm like well you know it kind of helps me to see different things I can write about and it helps me to kind of hone my writing skills on some level. I mean, I definitely think that I'm a better writer because I'm on there and I'm commenting on things and I'm writing things and I'm seeing what sort of affects people more. And so, you know, that's the justification, but the reality of it is I find it terrifying. I mean, I find it absolutely terrifying really? and I, I don't have teenagers. I actually think it's pretty terrifying for people our age. There was a guy who posted a question. This has been a couple months ago. He said, and I haven't written about it just because I felt like if I'd written about it immediately, he would have known I was writing about him. But he said, how can I, you know, I I have all these friends on here and I have this whole community on here. And like, you know, I just want to know how I can go deeper with this. and, And, you know, like, He's Christian. It was like, how can this feel more contemplative was his question, which was very strange to me. And of course, I'm so flippant. I'll Mm -hmm. just get on there and write anything. Right. So I get on there and I'm like, well, none of this is real. Right. Like we're all staring at screens. You and I are not really (laughs) friends. Right. Like we got that. Right. And people went nuts. I mean, people who are like grown, who are like in their 50s, were like, what are you talking about? This is totally real. And I was like, you guys are right. And then just like left the conversation, you know, because I wasn't going to get him back with them. I mean, it's fascinating to me that people will friend me on Facebook, people who I've never met, and they will think that we are friends. I'm like, we are not. When I see this stuff and sort of the fear in it is that community and the way our brains think about community has completely changed and we're just more and more and more isolated. I'm not even worried about teenagers. I'm worried about me, you know, I mean that line that he wrote like now you've got to decide how much you want to give up
1: dun, 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 dun.
2: yeah <laughs> it's like what so and i mean i feel like i've said this on here before but i feel like there's an entire generation of small children who are just like raised with i know our listeners can't see this but just raised with like this you know like this is mom is just the back of a cell phone mm. you know what i mean it's like hey what okay okay and you just peer on the cell phone and you put the cell phone back you know
1: Ethan highlighted something last week in The Weekender, something Nick Bilton wrote in the end of November for Vanity Fair. He said, it seems increasingly likely that our society will one day view our infatuation with Twitter, Facebook, and the like as a passing, often destructive fad. Talking about how opium and cocaine were used to help children with teething in the 1880s. I'm sort of, to be honest with you, RJ, I'm not on social media except for the Mockingbird Instagram. I'm still totally, uh, you know, addicted to it. Or I understand the dopamine rush, and that's what blogging is some, sometimes about too. I'm hoping he's right. I'm hoping that we will sort of be, you know, partisan or not, old, young, new. will sort of say we did not know what we were doing, and all of the science seems to say that this is really not helping people, and it's really making things tangibly worse but you know maybe that's too high of an anthropology or something like that i don't know
0: i found facebook to be so boring lately so boring i mean i used to look at look at a lot more and now i I mean i just i'm so tired of the endless politics like every so often i'll see a thoughtful conversation and i'm like thank god and don't get me wrong i still check it at least every day but ooh, and i'm just i have no interest in instagram i'm 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 showing my age now you know i'm i'm 41 you know instagram holds no mm-hmm. appeal for me i'm not going to get on some other social media platform twitter i'm i'm just not yeah. facebook is really the one kind of keep up with people you vaguely know and judge them or feel or feel judged by them but it's gotten kind of boring honestly
1: well the yeah. sense of that that what he says that perceived sense of perfection which is the law as we know or as least in theory we know i think that that's really how to say it. I mean, I think that that's really corrosive to people. I love how he concludes later on, he sort of castigates his audience and says that he doesn't want people to think they're too smart to fall for what social media does to you because they go to Stanford. He says, your best and brightest are the most likely to fall for it because you've been checkboxing your entire life, going from one thing to the next. And I do find that to be deeply true. Mm -hmm. I mean, it reminded me of this other thing that we wanted to highlight about Exercise, the consumerist church of fitness class is written by this wonderful writer. Her name is Zan Romanoff. I'm not a big exercise class person. Sarah, you know, you gave a talk recently at Mockingbird that was very colorful on the about interactions on the, the oh, treadmill. Yeah. But I do know that people do this. She goes through the ways exercise classes have come to function as churches. They're providing people with community and being able to sort of get re-embodied, you know, and that there's a ritual people go to. But what struck me was how deep it got into the psychology of what religion is actually like, or at least sort of legalistic religion. She says, the explicit promise that exercise has a spiritual component seems to elevate it to a higher purpose. Instead of focusing solely on health and attractiveness of the body, it suggests fitness is a gateway to a much larger and more lasting state of happiness and fulfillment, much like some religious practice. The idea is that if you can find your good self, your inner self, your higher self on a bike, then you can also do it when you're out in the world. But where it really gets charged is towards the end when she says, the fetishization of never-ending accomplishment, which thrives by one upping itself, Can create a perpetually striving mindset that's very good for selling class packages, but very bad for finding any kind of actual mental peace. And so the same drive that brings someone into an exercise class and keeps them attending, even when they're tired and it's tough, can become a liability when the challenge facing them is that they need to take a week off, when that's the actual challenge. She says, you know, there's a great line in there about accountability, which that sounds like some of the soul cycle people have stolen liberally from the Bible and from youth pastors throughout the ages and country. Um,
2: Thanks, youth pastors.
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey, I love you. I, I was a youth pastor. So was RJ. Yes, uh, indeed. Having teachers who are willing to insist on slowing students down is particularly critical because the obsession with harder and the equation of harder and better when it comes to exercise isn't just coming from within or out of the mouths of instructors. We live in a culture that fetishizes intensity as a path to purity and considers purity a form of desirable perfection. We cannot necessarily trust ourselves to know when to stop. But there is a spirituality to be found in slowing down and stopping. It's just that there's not as much profit. And so there aren't as many examples for us of how it might be done. Slowing down, Christmas season exercise. Yeah. Shoot from the hip, Sarah. What do you think?
2: Well, it reminded me of that episode from The Unbreakable, Kimmy Schmidt. Did you guys ever watch that show? I've
1: seen the first season. I love it.
2: Okay. It's the second season in which this happened. So Jenna Moroni plays like the fancy Manhattanite rich wife and she and her husband's marriage starts to fall apart. He's cheating on her. And at the same time, she becomes obsessed with soul cycle. And so she takes Kimmy, you know, her assistant to the soul cycle classes. And it'll be like this really religious experience and really incredible. And they'll walk out into the locker room and immediately General Moroni will be reminded that like her husband's leaving her her whole life selling part. She's not going to have any money. And then she goes, let's just go take another class. So they just spend <laughs> yeah. all day going in and out of soul cycle classes. I mean, I see this a ton, like among women my age, this is like a thing that everyone is doing everyone. I mean, you know, I was with a mom's group at our church a couple of weeks ago and just this pressure to look good, right. Gets coupled with this sort of faux spirituality and then you can justify it. I mean, as she said, like there's no end to the justification of like, I have to go to classes. I have to go to classes. I feel like this is TMI. So I apologize in advance to the two gentlemen in the room. But when we lived in New York, And everybody was so skinny. I did what wasn't called soul cycle, but probably is now I went to spin classes and we were trying to get pregnant and the teacher like knew everything about like, she would ask us these questions and everything was a journey and y'all blah, blah, blah. And I was having a conversation with her one morning and I said, you know, my husband and I were really, you know, we really want to get pregnant. It took us a while to get pregnant with our son. And she's like, oh, well, you should stop doing these classes because women typically don't ovulate when they do this much spin. And I was like, what? Like, it was like a part of the thing, you know, like. Anyway, apologies for anyone that that offended, but it it was a weird, I mean, it was like stepping into, I mean, I want to, I don't want to say a cult, but definitely like a mindset we all had to share and agree upon.
0: So Mm. Sarah, you talking about New York city, I remember just doing drop-off of my kids when they were younger, when all the parents were still dropping off and You know, by and large, guys were headed off to work and some women were too. But basically, there were two acceptable ways for women to show, actually, maybe three acceptable ways for women to show up at drop off. One was, you know, dressed for work. The second was dressed to the nines, or the third was, you know, in your workout clothes because you were going to go quote unquote workout when all you were actually going to do is go around the corner and go to the coffee shop and hang out with your friends. You know, but at least it, it gave you sort of an excuse to not be all dressed up. So. I don't
2: know yeah i mean it's a whole identity that women have now like we don't just stay at home right like that's got its own weight to it even saying it that way but we're not just at home like we're also like working out all the time and we have this whole you know i mean i have a friend who's very involved in yoga and it's referred to as a community i mean i think it was nadia Boltz weber who was like who obviously is very into exercise right but who said something like you know your yoga teacher is not going to show up with a casserole when your mom dies i mean Hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, and great if they do. I want to say great if your yoga teacher does. But when I read stuff like this, like I, th- I feel like a lot of this stuff stops at the door. Mm-hmm. I just wonder how genuine this is. I'm only nice to people because Jesus loves me, for the record. You know what I mean? Like if it were just yoga or spin class, I would not be nice to people. But like I'm only nice to people because I wake up in the morning and I'm like, oh my God, Jesus still loves me. That's crazy, you know? Yeah. So What
1: well, certainly plays into... It's a religion of law that amorphous law, you know, what is your best if you've never, you know, what what is your higher self, your full potential? That's a very difficult goal to have in life. It plays into our works, righteousness. And it. I mean, I think health is not a bad thing. I mean, who, who doesn't want to be healthy? Who wants to, you know, we all want to feel a little better. And the issue becomes when people are basically Sunday morning, all the gyms are packed and the churches are empty. What's going on there? And people are running to the law, I think. And I don't blame them because I do it and we all do it, but I, I, I cannot help but be grateful for a God that runs after us mm. and, and actually, and, uh, you know, runs. Ha <laughs> ha. You know, um, Got it. Yeah, well, and that's probably as good a segue as we're going to have to the final piece here, which of course is the more theological one. A couple of years ago, Ethan posted this wonderful devotion from Will Willimon from that one of a book of devotions about Advent and Christmas called "Watch for the Light," and he talks about Christmas. It actually plays directly into this exercise thing of wanting to achieve and to master and to progress. He says, Consider what we do at Christmas, the so called season of giving. We enjoy thinking of ourselves as basically generous, benevolent, giving people. There's one reason why everyone, even the nominally religious, love Christmas. Christmas is a season to celebrate our alleged generosity. Yet I suggest we are better givers than getters, not because we are generous people, but because we are proud, arrogant people. The Christmas story is not about how blessed it is to be givers, but about how essential it is to see ourselves as receivers. We prefer to think of ourselves as givers, powerful, competent, self-sufficient, capable people whose goodness motivates us to employ some of our power, competence, and gifts for the benefit of the less fortunate, which is a direct contradiction of the biblical account of the first Christmas. There we are portrayed not as the givers we wish we were, but as the receivers we are. This is often the way God loves us, with gifts we thought we didn't need, which transform us into people we don't necessarily want to be. With our advanced degrees, armies, government programs, material comforts, and self-fulfillment techniques, we assume that religion is about giving a little of our power in order to confirm to ourselves that we are indeed as self-sufficient as we claim. Then this stranger comes to us, blesses us with a gift, and calls us to see ourselves as we are, empty-handed recipients of a gracious God who, rather than leave us to our own devices, gave us a baby." Does this reach you in Houston? It's
0: striking. It is. It's because, you know, one of the things I've been in charge of was Harvey Relief for our church. And we had a lot of people, as Sarah did, who were flooded out and really just took a huge financial hit. And a lot of them are people who are used to giving and, and serving and being on the other side. And so people at the same time were very generous in our church. We raised some money for... Harvey relief and I had the the great fortune to be able to call people and tell them they were sending some money their way or just talking to them after they received checks the level of gratitude of gratefulness of thankfulness was pretty stunning actually I mean I've talked to a lot of people who were in tears and who said this exact same thing like I'm not used to receiving I'm not used to, used to being on the other side of generous giving but they were incredibly humbled and I can't help but think it I don't know it in it, it I hate to say this, but it, it affected their relationship with the church, obviously, and, and with, with God. And it's it's been a pretty beautiful thing to be a part of.
2: Yeah, I mean, I read this, and the thing that kind of stuck out to me was that this is often the way God loves us with gifts we thought we didn't need, which transform us into people we don't necessarily want to be. It's always so interesting to me that we expect things to go a different way. Mm. We expect everything to go a different way. We expected our life to go a different way. We expect our jobs to go a different way. And, you know, fundamental to our DNA is that we expected God to be a different way. Mm. And that that is just never how it works. I mean, it's like, you know, we're at the season of Christmas parties right now. And in our own household this past week, I got an evite to a party that had my address on it because we're hosting it and I had forgotten. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm, but I'm thinking about all these parties and the people that will be at it. And <laughs> There's this truism in my life that has lived out over and over again. It's whoever I complain about to my husband in the car on the way there is, who will sit by me at the party. Like that is how it works. And it's just a constant reminder of, I don't know, not just humility, but like that maybe I've got something to learn. You know Mm. what I mean? Not just like, oh, I'm going to humble myself and like be with this person. And it's really important for me to like be with this person, but more like maybe it's really important for me to know this person. I mean, my husband said to me actually the other day, he said it in the sweetest way, but he's like, Maybe God's just trying to remind you how much He loves them and how much He loves you. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that is what's happening again, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, it's just like the whole season feels that way right
1: now. But I honestly, where my mind is, is sort of the end of the year and having run a nonprofit and churches needing to do pledge campaigns and r- raising money, which is an uncomfortable place to be. You can spiritualize it all you want, but it's uncomfortable. I do think it's uncomfortable in a good way. Every year here at the church, we have these fellows um, who are wonderful kids right out of college. And they're mostly coming from quite affluent backgrounds and ready to do some service for the year. And we require them to raise a little bit of money. I mean, $5,000 or something like that. And you watch as they do sort of cartwheels to avoid it. And they procrastinate and procrastinate and procrastinate. And the reason they do it is not necessarily because they don't have the addresses or they don't think it's going to come in, but because it's so difficult to put yourself out there. Like Mm -hmm. when I, we were youth ministers, RJ and I had to raise our own support. Mm -hmm. And once Mockingbird, you know, we raised, you know, a huge amount of our budget from wonderful donors and supporters, but that's more for the organization. I no longer have to say David Zoll needs this money, even though maybe that's, that's what, how it comes across sometimes, but it's, it, it was such a relief to be off of the, you know, putting my hands out. But spiritually, if we really believe what we say, that's who we are. In fact, it is more blessed to receive. That's what we're doing when we're at the communion rail. We are all on the same level, rich, poor, you know, whatever political persuasion, whoever you are. And I think that that's a reminder that is actually, it's hard when things are going well and when you've been programmed to have it together. But then when life falls apart, and we've watched in our right in our community here as a couple of lives have dramatically fallen apart. And people who would never have had to ask for anything are having to ask for a lot. And what you see is how the joy and the gratitude and how close they feel to God in a way that they've never done before, they would never have chosen it. They've tried to resist it with every ounce of their strength. And yet here they are having to receive for their survival. You see the baby, you see the manger, you see it all play out in front of your eyes. And it's such a gift to receive that even by proxy. That's what I think, because you can't talk about this necessarily without thinking about finances,
0: It's where we put all our security, you know, Mm -hmm. all of our hope, all of our security, all of our sense of allows us to get through the day. And, you know, as someone who's been through times in my life where things just totally kind of fell apart to sort of get to the other side of that and be like, oh, yeah, maybe there actually is a God who cares about (laughs) me, you know, who's not necessarily all that interested in my plans, you know, or what I think is best or what I want. But actually, sort of knows better than I do yeah. and actually uh, knows what he's doing and is in control. And, and of course, I, you know, that was a number of years ago and I forget it all the time because as soon as control is wrested from my cold, dead hand, to quote Charlton Heston, I take it as soon as I possibly can, I take it back up again. And as I take it up, I take up all the accountability, the anxiety, the fear that comes with it. But hopefully, there are, are moments again where my mind's like, oh, yeah, I don't have to live in so much fear that things aren't going to go my way because they're going to go his way and his way's better than my way, even if sometimes it really, really sucks, <laughs> you
1: know? <laughs> well, Merry Christmas to you both. <laughs> I think I'll we will um, No, No, well, that's what we're every year at December. We get to receive this gift again together, whether or not we kind of are in the circumstances where we can. I think it's... There's something to the liturgical year that is a little comforting in that respect. I'll say
0: this. I'm better this year because last year, every year of Christmas, I get super... Anxious and freaked out, basically, about how much money I'm going to spend mm-hmm. and about, like, a, okay, I'm going to spend this much, but I'm going to hold back this much. I'm going to yeah. save some of it. I'm not going to spend it all. And then finally, last year, I said to my wife, I'm just realizing we are going to spend all the money. Yeah. All the money <laughs> shall be spent. Yeah. There will be none left.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and,
0: <laughs> and we'll be okay next year. Yeah. And we were, you know? And so yeah. now this year, I'm like, yeah, okay, it's, it's just, it's just every, it's all, it, everything must go. It's all going to go, right? but there's something kind of beautiful about that. You know, if God is willing to give himself a hundred percent, then maybe I, maybe I can as well, even though I'm like literally sweating right now. It might be because the heat just came on, but I'm like, I'm literally sweating right now as I talk about it. Oh God, the money is all going to be gone. Um, Praise God. Praise God. We'll make it to next year.
2: Yeah, the money stuff is terrifying. I mean, I, last Monday, so I always find really anxious things to do at about 8 a.m. on the one day my husband officially has off, which is Mondays. So I'm always like, you know, at 8 a.m., i always like, we should clean out the garage. Or I'm like, you know, <sighs> let's meal plan and go to the grocery store. So what this a gift past you Monday, are. I was like, I've spent too much money. We should check the credit cards. And oh, um no. yeah. <laughs> oh, What? That's the worst idea I've ever heard. I'm an amazing wife. <laughs> oh, so my God. Um, so, so we checked the credit cards which were actually not that bad. But sometimes I just, I feel like I feel the weight of my DNA. Like I feel like I just have this like internal, like emaciated louisianian from like 1846 that's like ruling my body and sometimes she's just like we don't have anything we're all gonna starve you know and like that kicks in like every december and so fight or flight yeah and there's and there's no yeah. trust in god right god god for her no. for, in 1846 is, no is like only to be feared um and not to be trusted um because the other shoe's gonna drop right somebody's about to die from diphtheria it's happening so um yeah, it's just, uh, it's a, it is a, you know, it's such a funny thing to call. And I was like, oh, we haven't spent nearly as much money as I thought we had. And then I'm like, oh, why am I, am I
0: just. It's so early in the month. Like you're, don't get cocky, Sarah.
2: It's, <laughs> it's <laughs> I, so I, early. And I had that thought too. But it's also just like, am I trying to reject the gift before it's even gotten here? Do you know what I mean? Am I trying yeah. to make this about my anxiety and my worry? And Oof. what are we doing this season? And blah, blah blah Instead of just being like oh my word, like this thing is happening in this manger. Like this is the thing that saves me from it all. Am I going to busy myself so I don't have to acknowledge how much I need that?
1: Mm. Well, let's wrap it up there. I'll read uh, the third beautiful verse of It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. Since we won't be back till after the new year, probably the first week in the new year, I'm thinking like the end of that first week. But maybe you know, this, this is my favorite Christmas carol verse. O ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Look now, for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. O rest beside the weary road, and hear the angels sing. Pray that we all hear those angels. Thank you, guys. I will talk to you soon. Thank you, listeners. Thank you all those who who are supporting Mockingbird, because we sure... We sure need it. We are so grateful to be taken care of and to get to do this for you and with you.
0: Thanks, Dave. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. All right, much love
1: to you both. Merry Christmas. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group, and if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time.